Today, um, we're getting into Luke chapter 6. We're continuing in this series we've called Dear Theophilus, as Dr. Luke has written a, a letter to his friend Theophilus to share the foundation of the gospel in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. As uh, Luke has established this, from the first chapter on, he's been really getting us grounded and rooted in who Jesus is. From the announcement of his birth before he was even conceived, um, as we see John the Baptist uh, brought by God as the forerunner to precede the Messiah, then Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies, the one who was to come, the serpent crusher, uh, the anointed one of God. Jesus came as fully God and fully man. And as he began his teaching, uh, he was rejected by his own hometown folks. Not in any way surprising to him. That's how it had always been. A prophet was without honor in his hometown. Uh, prophets of God were often rejected. In fact, regularly rejected by the people, particularly those who knew them. How dare you, how dare you, you know, tell us that we need to repent? So they were great with his preaching. They were great with him calling people to repentance as long as it wasn't them. And as long as he didn't get a little too big for his britches. They were happy with his healings. They were excited with his prominence. The leaders were beginning to get a little worked up, a little concerned about it. And as we moved into uh, where we are now, Jesus has now called his 12 apostles out from his disciples his disciples are those who have chosen to follow him, basically apprentices, those who are learning to be like the master, and apostles are those who are sent as special messengers. All disciples are called to be witnesses for God, but the apostles were set apart as special messengers. There were 12 apostles, then you subtract one uh, when Judas Iscariot eventually kills himself, we'll see that at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the book. And then they added in another one, that, as we see in the book of Acts. So Jesus maintained, even after he returned to heaven, 12 apostles. There have always been 12. There have only been 12. The rest of us are not a part of that group. Many use that title, but it's not the same thing as what we see with these 12. Now, having called those 12 out from the group of disciples, Jesus is back together with the larger group of disciples. They descend from the place that they were as he called the 12 out, and now they go down into a, a flat place, whether that is uh, a plain, as some believe, below the mountain, uh, or if it's up in the mountain, they found a, a plain on the mountainside or in a mountainous range. Not really a major significance to the point of Luke's text. Here we get to see Jesus teaching his followers in earnest. Up until this time we see him teaching, but we don't have his teaching described for us. We know from all of the Gospels that uh, the message that Christ preached to the world, particularly early on, but to, but to all of the world, is repent for the kingdom of God is near. And as he did this, calling them to repentance, to turn from their way to God's way, he was offering them in himself a new way of relating to God. That will come to its fruition at the end of the book of Luke, 
uh, as we see Jesus go to the cross in our place. Between now and then, if you have a, a red letter edition of the Bible, if you take a, a, a look at what's going to happen here, most of your letters are in red. Most of your words are from Christ himself from now until we get to Passion Week when he begins to talk less as he, as he uh, faces the cross. So for today, as we're going into this, um, we're going to spend a few weeks in this Sermon on the Plain, as some have called it, um, to see Jesus teaching his disciples. But I'm going to read with you, I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read through the entire portion of teaching that we find in the latter half of uh, chapter 6. Today we're going to focus in on verses 17 to 26. So if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. We've got extras here. Uh, you can just put your hand up and Mr. Gary will hook you up. He, if you put up your hand that you need a Bible, then he'll make sure that you've got one because we want to make sure that you've got God's Word itself. You don't need to hear my thoughts. You know, ask my family. My opinion is just my opinion and sometimes it can get annoying. But God's Word is eternal. And what God says is always right. Amen. I knew that was a good spot for an amen. Let's try another one. What God says is always right. Amen. The struggle we have is not whether or not the truth is true, but whether or not we will choose to see the truth as true. You follow me? Are you tracking? There are only two opinions in the universe that ultimately matter. God's opinion, because his opinion is reality. And your opinion, because it determines what you're going to do with God's opinion. When God makes a promise, your faith is simply aligning your thoughts with the truth of God's promise. Then, your behaviors and your feelings will begin to line up with that truth. And line up with what is actually real, rather than what seems real. That's going to be the focus of this entire section that Jesus is teaching. How does a Christ follower live the Christ life? How do we get beyond what seems real to our senses, and in the words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, actually in reality trust the Lord with our whole hearts, with all of our beings, not leaning on our own understanding or strength or ability or wealth or perception of our surroundings, but instead... Surrendering all of our ways to Him and letting Him handle the results. That's the point of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's the point of almost everything that Jesus teaches. We're going to see that here. So I'm going to invite you to follow along. We're in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be, be, be picking up with verse 17 and we will read through the end of the chapter. Verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me now, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes, <clears throat> excuse me, if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. I will show you what he is like, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundations on rock. When a flood came, 
The torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Let us pray as we begin to study God's Word today. Father in heaven, you alone, you alone define truth. You alone are sovereign over all reality, over everything that you have made. That's difficult for us to grasp as finite people. We can't grasp the, the vastness, the magnitude of your infinity, of your eternality. And we can't grasp the holiness that is you, that all goodness is found in you and no goodness exists apart from you. That's hard for us to fathom. And yet even the things that we in our flesh consider to be good or bad, it's because of your image in us, your character reflected in us that allows us to recognize these objective truths. Lord, as we begin to study your word, we know, we know the enemy hates it. Father, we recognize that we are in the midst of a great and tumultuous battle. There is a war waging every moment, even now, a war for our souls. And the battlefield is our minds. So Father, now as we begin to open your word, I pray for everyone hearing my voice, that you would clear off everything that might get in the way. That you would silence the deceiving voice of the enemy. That he might not deceive, discourage, or distract us. Father, strip away the influence of the world for a moment. We're so bathed in an anti-God dogma. We don't even know it. It's like a fish not realizing it's wet. We're so soaked in this sinful world, we don't even realize the influence. But for now, Lord, for this moment, as we open your word, I ask that you would just <coughs> break us and soften us and strip that influence away that we might be able to see what you have for us. And Lord, every one of us, regardless of who we are and, and what our background might be, every single one of us battle, battles with our own flesh, our own desires, those things that are natural, when you've called us to that which is supernatural. And so, Father, I ask that you would protect us from that. Father, I pray also for those who are not able to be with us today for various reasons, those who are unable to be with us because of travel or, or illness, those who are unable to be with us because they are overwhelmed right now. 
Father, lift us out of the muck and the mire and the darkness into your glorious light. Teach us your word today, Lord, and be glorified, be magnified in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into this, Jesus has a key foundational thought that, that we're going to see in these paired contrasts in the passage we look at today. Verses 17 to 26, really 20 to 26, 17 uh, and through 19 are kind of setting it up, setting the stage, and we'll be able to get a greater understanding because of that context. But as Jesus in 20 to 26 gives us these paired contrasts, he's showing the earth life, the flesh life, versus the eternal spirit life. When we begin to see things from God's perspective, we see them differently than we see them based on our own senses, our own understanding, our perception of our circumstances in the world around us. So as we walk through this, uh, this sermon in chapter 6, today we're going to be dealing with circumstances primarily. And the focus that Jesus will have is on our attitude or on our thinking. You can use those words pretty interchangeably in this particular context. As Jesus is, is dealing with this, he's not saying, uh, you know, blessed are you poor because, you know, I'm going to take this away magically from you. He's not saying, you know, you rich are cursed because, you know, it's just so evil to be rich and I'm going to take this all away from you. I'm going to change all these things in your temporary world. Jesus is calling his followers, we'll see in a moment why it's his followers that he's calling to this, for us to see a greater reality, a bigger picture, a wider scope, to take the long view, as Chuck Swindoll likes to say, to be able to, to see what is real rather than what seems real. Many of you know that I like to quote the old uh, movie, it's old now, it's about 18 years old, uh, the Matrix with Keanu Reeves, one of the greatest actors in American history. But, okay, so anyway, um, it was a joke. And if you haven't seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you wouldn't know that. So anyway, back to reality. In The Matrix, uh, uh, Keanu Reeves plays a character called Neo. And Neo is a programmer and finds himself encountering something he couldn't comprehend. And he discovers in the process of this that everything he has ever known as reality is a lie. He believed one thing, and it turned out that everything, everything was something entirely different. Everything that he knew was a program, a construct. It was designed to look one way when the reality behind it that he did not see was something entirely different. That is exactly what Jesus is telling us in this sermon. As he is teaching his disciples, the very first teaching we get laid out for us in the book of Luke, Jesus is teaching here that there is a greater reality. And our core reality today that, that expresses this is that real life is more than the circumstances of this life. Real life is more than the circumstances of this life. Say that with me. Real life is more than the circumstances of this life. We get stuck in the here and now. We live by our senses. We only see what we see. We only perceive what our minds are able to take in. 
And so therefore, as we understand our circumstances, we, inside of ourselves, define our reality according to our limitations. That's why it's so difficult for us to look back through history and understand the thinking of those who went before. Because people who lived in 1933 did not think or function or have the same values as people who live in 2018. I had to think about what year it was for a moment. People who lived in 1861 did not think or perceive or function or have the same values as people in 2018. It was a different processing. In, you know, if you could imagine your mind as if it were a processor and a computer, there are various upgrades along the way. And I'm not suggesting that they are inherently better. I am suggesting that they are different. We process things differently today than we might have in a previous generation. We are trapped within the limitations of who we are, our background, our upbringing, how we see things. But that does not make it so. And just because in 1861 people might read the scriptures falsely, contrary to the orthodoxy of historic Christianity, and see that uh, race-based slavery is a good thing that God instituted, that does not make it so. And just because people in 2018 look at the Bible and say all of these rules that God has about morality and marriage and sexuality and, and who we are and how family is intended, that doesn't really apply because it's a new world. That doesn't make it so. And just because your circumstances seem really overwhelming or you feel like you've got life pretty well handled, neither one of those things makes it so. That's the point Jesus is trying to get across to his, his followers, his disciples today. Whatever situation we find ourselves in right now, in the here and now, in this life, whether we are afflicted or comfortable, it's temporary and it's small. Eternity holds a greater reality than what we can see or perceive in this life. There is something much bigger, truth, is much bigger than we thought, much bigger than our small minds can take in. And as we walk through this, I want you to see it. Let's, let's take a look at the text, and we'll kind of set this up, and we'll come back to the principles behind it. So having called out from, uh, he's up on a mountainside in verse 12, uh, and he's spending the night, the whole night, praying. He's in solitude just just the Son speaking to the Father in earnest prayer. And then he goes back uh, to his group of disciples and he calls from among them the twelve. Now in verse 17, he takes the twelve and he goes back down and stands on a level place. Here in this level place, in this mountainous area, they're in a flat place. A large crowd of his, what's the word there? You got the text. Take a look at it. I'm, I'm just testing you to make sure you're actually following along in the scriptures. So what does it say in verse 17? A large crowd of his disciples. Disciples are the followers. Those who have chosen to align themselves with Jesus. They've turned from their way to follow God's way. And they're embracing Jesus as Messiah. That's what disciples do. These are Christ followers. 
So as Jesus is taking his apostles, his special messengers, and he gets back together with a larger group of disciples, his followers, there's more. He gets, he gets with them. And with them, we see also, there was a great number of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre, and Sidon. Apostles, disciples, and also a crowd of people. Now, the crowd of people are there on purpose. They came to see Jesus. They came because they've heard about him. They've heard about his teaching. They've seen his authority played out in, in the power of his healings. So these people, not yet followers, important for us to recognize, these people had come to hear him in verse 18 and to be healed of their diseases. See, folks want to get stuff. Right? So when, when they come to him, they haven't really decided to follow him yet. But they see people in need of healing receiving healing. So if they need healing, they're going to come to Jesus to get it. They heard about a great preacher. They want to come hear this great preacher. But this crowd of people hasn't made up their mind yet. They may not have even thought about the question yet. They just know I need something, he's got the answer, I'm going to go check it out. So they had come to hear this, they've come, come to be healed, um, and those who were troubled by evil spirits were cured just in the presence of Jesus. And we saw this uh, earlier on when he shows up in the synagogue, and a man with an evil spirit, uh, the, this demon begins to speak just because Jesus is present. The demon is trembling and terrified. So there is power in the person and presence of Christ. And we see that here as well. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We see in chapter 5 that, that uh, as he goes uh, to a certain place at a certain time, uh, the Father puts the power of healing in him. Now, it's already there in Jesus, but these phrases, when we see this power show up, seem to indicate that God has appointed a certain time and place for this healing to occur. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens by God's sovereignty when it's time. That's pretty significant as we go forward. God has appointed the time for your healing. God has appointed the time for your victory. And it doesn't come on your timeline. It doesn't come on my timeline. It comes on His timeline. All the people were there to touch Him because power was coming from Him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said this. And this is where we see these paired contrasts. Blessed are you who are poor, implicitly now, for yours is the kingdom of God. You don't have stuff now. You don't possess things now. But you will possess the kingdom of God. Other people have stuff. You don't. But child, you inherit everything. Notice the contrast that we see uh, in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. You got it now. That's, that's as good as it gets. Now understand, as we look at these contrasts, I'm going to stop here before we move through the rest of them so that we all are, are connecting the dots. As we go through these contrasts, Jesus is not saying that poor people go to heaven. And he's not saying that rich people go to hell. He's not condemning them for being rich. That's not what this woe means. It's the contrast of the blessings. So this is a parallel 
to Matthew chapter 5 and following. We see the rest of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew spread throughout some other places in Luke, whether, uh, you know, that leads many people to believe that these are separate events, but Jesus teaches the same content repeatedly to his disciples. Very logical, very possible. I don't know, but what I do know is that what Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are you because of these things, he says here in Luke, and draws out the contrast of what the opposite of that looks like. So he's saying here to his disciples, why does that matter? It matters because if you are not his disciple, then what you have now is all you're ever going to get. These things that he's saying are true for those who are in him. So he's speaking to the disciples in the hearing of the crowd of people. Now that's what we do every Sunday. I'm speaking primarily to those who have chosen to follow Christ. And yet we recognize that not everyone who comes to real life has made that leap, has had their, their nature changed, their identity changed, been born again. You may just be coming here because you're trying to get some healing. Because you heard something about it and you wanted to check it out. We have people that may listen online or check out our podcast by accident or because they're seeking some sort of inspiration and instead they end up offended. That happens because truth is offensive. But Jesus is telling these truths to his disciples in the hearing of everyone else. So as we go through the rest of these things, when he begins to talk about behaviors, these behaviors, just like the circumstances in today's passage, do not make you a child of God or keep you from being a child of God. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the only thing that does. What he's saying is, if you are a Christ follower, if you are my disciple, here's the blessed life. Get your mind right. Lift your gaze. Stop looking at everything around you and begin to look at eternity. So blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Ain't got nothing now. But deliverance is coming. And a great wealth will be yours. Blessed are you who hunger now. You're unsatisfied. You have a need and it gnaws at you and you keep trying to fill that need. We have all kinds of needs, don't we? You will be satisfied. Notice what he says to, the, to those who are well fed now. Woe to you, verse 25, who are well fed now who are satisfied, if you will, because you will go hungry. There will be a time when what satisfies you now will leave you wanting, and you won't be able to feed that hunger. Only Christ satisfies. He goes on to say, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh, and contrasts that with those who laugh now, for you will weep and mourn. Don't don't get hung up on being happy now because it's temporary. It's passing. And he wraps up with this idea in verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And he contrasts that in verse 26 Woe to you when all men speak well of you. <laughs> My grandfather used to say that a lot. 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. He wraps up, the, the whole concept here is rooted in what he says in verse 23. Verse 23 is the foundation. He, he's connecting it specifically to the persecuted ones. If you're persecuted for the name of Christ, then this. But it's the foundation for all the rest of this as well. Because of all of this temporary nature now, of everything that we see, you need to adjust your mind and begin to rejoice in that death is the beginning for the Christ follower. Death here opens up the door to wealth unknown, to security that you've never felt before, to acceptance and fulfillment that you can't even imagine. If you've ever seen the movie National Treasure, as, uh, uh, yeah, I like a lot of movies, as Nick Cage uh, plays this character who's on a quest for the treasures of Solomon. And it's a, a fictionalized picture of uh, Freemasonry and so on. And, and so throughout history, the Knights Templar have protected the treasure and so on and so forth. Cool, fun story. They get to the end, and after all of this suffering, when all seems lost, they open the door. And they find treasure they can't even fathom. And it just keeps going. And it keeps going. And it keeps going. And everything they've been through psh, doesn't even matter. Not on the radar anymore. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 23. Rejoice in that day, the day of your suffering, the day of your persecution, and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. In other words, you know something that the people around you don't know. You know what your persecutors can't know. That from, for you, from this moment on in your life, it only gets better. It only gets better. The worst you have in this life is going to come to an end, and then you will have joy unspeakable and never-ending. And the best you have in this life is also going to come to an end. And you better have that same wealth. Otherwise, you got nothing. And your best day here was the best you'll ever have. Rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Understand, this life is temporary. The whole point that Jesus is making, and this will undergird what he says through the rest of chapter 6, is that real life is more than the circumstances of this life. With that foundation, as we, have, as we look at our attitude about circumstances, we will begin to go into next week the, our attitude toward people, toward enemies, toward uh, judging others. We're going to be looking at uh, our attitude toward the doing of things and behaviors. We're going to be looking at our attitude toward the gospel and the promises of God. And all of it hinges on this concept that real life is more than the circumstances of this life. Now, I'm going to tell you now, you're going to have to do some work if you want to get a hold of this. Because we're going to go through some scriptures today, but if we went through all the scriptures that, that draw this together... We wouldn't leave. We'd just keep on reading. We'd go through the whole book. Because this is the, the, the tie-in of everything. Everything that we see from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is pointing us to God through Christ. All the scriptures point to the Messiah, and the Messiah points to the Father. 
And we begin to go forward in looking at this when we grasp that what we see now is not what is real. It's the matrix. We have to be able to see beyond that. So Adam and Eve, they get duped by the, by the serpent because the serpent is trying to get them to focus on the now. Doesn't it look good? Isn't it going to give you wisdom? God's holding back from you. And God says, look, I know what you don't know. And I don't have to tell you what I know because I'm God and you're not. I'm sovereign. You're subject. You follow. Trust me. In that moment, Eve did not trust him. She trusted what she could understand from the deceiver. She didn't know he's the deceiver. If you know he's the deceiver, you don't get deceived. She didn't know it. And Adam seems to have gone into it eyes wide open, right? She gets deceived, and he says, okay, I'm going to choose her over God. Guys, when we see the book of Revelation at the very end, Jesus is, is revealing to John and to all of us that everything you see now is temporary and it's small. And there is a greater thing coming that you can't even picture. So much so that John can't even put it into words, what he's seeing. So he's coming up with the best he can, the best description, physical description of infinite, eternal, spiritual things. And it's blowing his mind and he falls on his face before the Lord as if dead. And the book of Revelation, just like the book of Genesis and everything in between, is telling all of us the greater reality matters. Stop embracing the lesser reality. It's not that this life isn't real. Just like when I watch a movie, that movie is real. I'm really watching it. I really put that DVD in the player. But that's not really real. That's not real life. Real life is more. We find that eternity has something greater for us. So there are four areas that we see. Four areas that we see that we need to embrace a greater reality. Okay? Four areas where I need to embrace a greater reality. Security, provision, joy, and acceptance. We're going to walk through these, these four. And there's some overlap and there's some gaps. You may not like the wording. doesn't matter because it's what you got. So as we go through this, the principles are what we're looking at. So before we break these down, I want you to turn with me to a passage that you're all familiar with, Psalm 23. If you're not sure where the Psalms are in your Bible, somewhere right in the middle, you find chapter 23. Many of you already have this memorized. You've probably said it or read it or heard it at an awful lot of funerals. I'll be reading from the... NIV, so if you're quoting it from memory, many of you probably have it from the King James Version or the New Revised Standard or the Revised Standard Version. Here's why I want us to see Psalm 23. It's very familiar with it. It's very familiar to us. I want you to look at it with fresh eyes. David was a shepherd before he was a king. He was a shepherd who was in charge of sheep. And now he's writing this sung prayer, this worshipful poem from the perspective of a sheep relying on his shepherd. He gets that because he has learned how to be the shepherd to his sheep. And now he speaks of the great shepherd shepherding him. Here's what he says. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Some have, have emphasized this making, that he forces me to lie down. He, he causes me to lie down in green pastures. Let's not overwork this. He brings me to a place where I am provided for. And he leads me beside quiet waters. Water gives life. Quiet waters are a picture of stability and calm. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now you can probably identify with your soul being dragged down, exhausted, drained, overwhelmed. The circumstances of life just kicking the tar out of your soul. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in the midst of this, he restores my soul. He brings back to life. He revives what was dead in me. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He teaches me the right way. Righteousness almost always in scripture refers to how we interact with others. It has to do with justice. It has to do with right behavior. We'll see that in the rest of Jesus' sermon in chapter 6. He says, you guide me in the right way to live. But you don't do it for my sake. You don't do it so that I can have my best life now, so that I can get over my situation. You do it for your own glory. The reason God blesses us is because it blesses Him. For your own namesake, for your glory, you do this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, the valley of the shadow of death, I heard Tony Evans preaching on this recently. Talking about there's this valley as you're going through these, these mountains in, this, in the area near Bethlehem there. You get these high places and then down in this low valley, when the sun goes over the peak of that mountain, it's as if it's dusk or nighttime when the shadow it gets cast over that. It's still light everywhere else, but you're stuck in this shadow. And this shadow is scary because that's when the predators come out. That's when the danger comes. When the darkness falls, the sheep get scared because he doesn't know what's out there in the darkness. It could be a bear, a wolf. It could be a lion coming to eat the sheep. The sheep get scared because of the shadow, because of the darkness. And David writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, notice that even though I'm going to walk through that valley. Every one of us does. We all face the darkness. We all have the shadows fall. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where evil is present, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That rod and staff, at the risk of taking too much time on this, uh, is the, the hook and a stick that the shepherd uses for guidance and rescue and for protection, to beat away a predator if necessary. Your rod and your staff, your guidance, your protection, your security, they comfort me. I'm comforted in the midst of this dark place where evil is present and it's all around me and I can't see it and I don't know what the future holds and I don't know if I'm going to be attacked by a wolf or a bear or a lion. In the middle of this darkness, I am comforted because you are with me. 
David gets that. And he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have me sit down to a feast. Now, listen, uh, it doesn't take a soldier to know that you don't sit down and feast in the middle of a battlefield. When your enemies are present, you're on your guard. But when you sit down to this table, this feast table, at that time they would recline. You didn't sit in a chair, you would recline. You rest at this table. You set me down at this banquet, this feasting, this resting, even while my enemies are present. The battle is going on, and yet you are with me. You handle my security. You handle my problems. You provide the feasting at the table. All I have to do is let you do your thing and relax. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That anointing is a symbol of choosing and acceptance. You would anoint a king. You would anoint a priest. And it's a symbol of being accepted and chosen. And David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd and he chose me. He chooses me to be his. I don't earn it. I haven't proven myself to God, but you have blessed me with your presence and you have chosen and anointed me. My cup of blessing isn't just full. It's pouring over. Surely, goodness and love, you may be more familiar with goodness and mercy. This word of love has the implication of compassion and mercy. The goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life. And here's the kicker. Here's what Jesus wants us to grasp. If he were to take Psalm 23 and throw it into Luke 6, yes, obviously I'm, I am uh, being a little subjective as I look at this. Jesus, if he were to do what I'm doing now and to connect this, here would be his point. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is real life. Not the circumstances of my right now life. But I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we had time to do more songs, we'd have done better as one day. What a great reality. With all of the stuff I could have in life, none of it compares to dwelling in the house of the Lord. Psalm 23 is a picture of what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 6. Having seen that, let's jump into these. Security is one of the areas that I need to embrace the greater reality. Notice this. The afflicted must not fear. The comfortable must not trust their present status. The afflicted must not fear. The comfortable must not trust their present status. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's to the right of the book of Luke. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, somewhere near the middle, the early middle of your New Testament. We call it 2 Corinthians because it's the second book of Corinthians. As Jesus is talking about the poor and, and the wealthy... It's easy for us when we can afford what we need to feel secure. 
It's easy when we have a strong army to feel secure. And yet the psalmist writes, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. When I find my security in stuff here, I'm going to be in trouble. When I find my security in the arm of the Lord, I can never, ever fall. Starting with verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, point to the earthly tent you live in, right? It's this body. That's what we're talking about, this physical life. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, what does that mean? Death. We're talking about death, right? This is not rocket science. Boy, the Bible is so hard to read. It's really not that hard. Body, death. When this body dies... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, an eternal body. He's sticking with the same metaphor here. We have an eternal life in him when this life runs out. Not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. A sign of security. I'm protected. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal, what is dying, may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting way of saying it? We think, like in terms of what he says in, in his other passage in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, that it's going to be swallowed up in death. We think of, you know, as soon as you read swallowed up, it almost like naturally leads and swallowed up in death. No, no, no. So that what is dying at that point of what we call death can be swallowed up in life. This is the perspective of the Christ follower who has aligned their thoughts with reality, with truth. That it might be swallowed up in life. Verse 5, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident. Now, this is a hyperbolic statement here. Because we're not always confident. It's not like every, literally every moment I never lose confidence. That's unrealistic, and it's not what Paul's trying to say. But there's a confidence below that, beneath that, that, that is the, the support, the foundation for it, so that we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Now, as we're... As we're seeing this passage, Paul is saying, death ain't no big deal. In fact, death is release from this ongoing death that we are living. You and I are living death now. Everything in the universe is collapsing. This is the law of entropy. All things hurtling toward death disorder and decay. Always. This is true in every system unless something acts upon it from outside. God uses the physical to illustrate the spiritual and the real. For us as well, we are in this moment dying. 
And when we leave this body behind and we are present with the Lord, we are for once free, totally secure, coming into our heavenly possession, into the dwelling that is made for us, not by human hands, but by God himself. The afflicted must not fear. The comfortable must not trust their present status. Another area that I need to embrace a greater reality is provision. Provision. We see uh, in, in Luke, as we talk about the poor versus the wealthy, we see here the contrast between the hungry and the well-fed. Now in Matthew, Jesus connects this to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So when we see the, the, the composite of these, he's clearly not just talking about physical hunger. That seems to be the case here, but it's not just that. It's a general dissatisfaction. I can't seem to, to fill my need. I've got a hole and I need it to be filled. I'm hungering. I'm thirsting for something greater. And in the words of that great theologian, Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. That's what he's talking about. So when we're talking about provision, the afflicted must not worry. The comfortable must not trust their present wealth. The afflicted must not worry. The comfortable must not trust their present wealth. Turn to the left to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Now this is part of the parallel that I was mentioning that starts in Matthew 5. And Matthew is really a longer version of this teaching. Luke has a, a shorter, somewhat abbreviated version whether that's all that was taught in that particular moment or whether it was condensed for his purposes is unknown and equally irrelevant. But as we look at Matthew chapter 6, we really want to focus in on verse 19. But because of the context of what he's talking about, to see the broader picture, let's go back up to 16. Matthew 6, starting with verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Underline that in your Bible if you're, if you're prone to underlining. They have received their reward in full. That's why I want us to see this section. But when you fast, put oil on your head. It would be basic, take care of your hygiene. Wash your face so that you will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Notice what he said to the rich person, or to the well-fed person. You're well-fed now, but you're going to go hungry. You've gotten all you're getting if you're relying on this life. That's all there is. If you're a religious person, this picture of fasting is somebody who's trying to make sure everybody knows how spiritual they are. I want everybody to know I never miss church. I want everybody to know I talk about Jesus all the time. I want everybody to know, you know, I'm not like those other people. I'm not part of the world. I'm, I'm a Jesus guy. Great. But all the praise that you get from people for that, that's all the reward you get. 
Why is God going to waste time praising you if you've already praised yourself and let others praise you? The same thing is true when we're talking about provision. And he continues that thought. Verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value, this is where your heart is. This is where your affection lies. Don't put your value, don't cherish those things. Okay? <clears throat> Jump ahead to verse 25. Therefore I tell you, <clears throat> therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? He's making a broad statement here. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And he goes on to, to develop this. And in verse 33 and 34, we see the culmination of it. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I picture Jesus laughing as he says that. You do realize that the birds of the air do die, right? And the flowers of the field, as beautifully as they're clothed, they pass away. Jesus isn't saying, don't worry, because nothing bad will ever happen to you. Saying nothing bad will ever happen to you outside of God's will, outside of his hand. And whatever bad happens here, your father who loves you much more than birds and flowers has your best interest at heart. As a Christ follower, we must shift our perspective. So we're not focused on the provision of the here and now. We're not focused on the protection of the here and now. We are focused on the one who holds all things together. And if he who was willing to give up his son for me allows it into my life, it must be good for me. I don't know how. I don't understand it. Because I'm not God. Third area we need to embrace a greater reality is joy. Jesus is talking about those who mourn now, who grieve, who weep now, who will laugh later, and those who laugh now, who will mourn and weep later. We need to understand this. The afflicted must not wallow. Maybe that's an awkward way of saying it. I didn't have a better one that fit my pattern. The afflicted must not wallow. The comfortable must not trust their present happiness. We chase after happiness all the time. Our primary human flesh drives our preservation and pleasure. So we seek to avoid pain. We seek pleasure. And we do this constantly. And Christians are not to get caught up in that. Notice, he doesn't say not to be sad. Blessed are you who mourn. You will mourn. And it's not wrong to mourn. But don't let that define you. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get hung up on the fact that life is hard and I'm sad. 
Get used to it. Life is hard and it's temporary. You will be sad. There will be grief. When a loved one dies, it's not a time to dance around and think this is great. Of course it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. We live in a sinful, broken, fallen world. And it reminds us of the reality that there is more to come. Jesus wants us to lift our gaze. Don't wallow in the fact that you are unhappy now. And don't get excited because your life is good and you're able to pay all your bills and have all the the comforts of life that you want. If you're finding your happiness in things, it's going to all rot. All of it. Unless you get concerned. He's going to talk about judging a little later on. We won't talk about it today, but I'm going to talk about it today. Don't start looking around at the people that you think are more comfortable than you and, oh, woe to you, rich person. It's not about that. Stop finding happiness in the here and now. That's not our best life. If it is now, it isn't best. The best is yet to come. The afflicted must not wallow. The comfortable must not trust their present happiness. Just to make sure we grasp this, turn to the book of Hebrews, to the right of where we are now. Right before the book of James, you find the book of Hebrews. When you get to Hebrews, look at Chapter 12. In the midst of a section on enduring hardship, because God disciplines those he loves, he brings hardship into the lives of his children to make us more like Christ. We don't like to hear it. Nobody likes discipline. But he does this to shape us to chisel us, to make us more like Christ. But he leads off this chapter, if you will, with this thought. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Very often when we see that, we want to connect that in our mind with the evil sins of usually somebody else for those things that we shouldn't do. It's broader than that. It's the whole perspective of finding ourselves in this life, of following after our own fleshly desires rather than having a broader perspective. It's all caught up in that. And we run with race. Check this out, verses 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, I would underline this if it were me, For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the the throne of God, symbolic of the completion of the task. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the completer. He is the one that designed our faith, that gives us our faith. He's the one that brings it to completion. And Jesus, the one that we are seeking to be like, Because he saw the joy in heaven, 
was willing to endure even the cross for us. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The afflicted must not wallow. The comfortable must not trust their present happiness. Last we see acceptance is an area where we need to embrace the greater reality. The afflicted must not despair. And the comfortable must not trust their present popularity. The afflicted must not despair. And the comfortable must not trust their present popularity. I'm going to have you do this in the opposite order of what's written for you in your program. Let's look at the same passage in Luke we've been looking at. We said that verse 23 is kind of the hinge point here. Notice what he says. Rejoice in that day of persecution and leap for joy when the hardship comes. Because great is your reward in heaven for, here's our point, that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Turn to Colossians 1. You go to the right of Luke. Not quite as far as you want to Hebrews. A little bit past 2 Corinthians. So got a little map for you. Colossians chapter 1. When, when sin entered the world, guys, we went from perfect wholeness and acceptance in God to a separation. And we've been laboring with these predominantly negative emotions ever since. Here's what our Lord tells us through the pen of Paul here, starting with verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, not evil as we often might think of it, but flesh-centered, human-centered behavior. But now, here's our important point now. I would underline a lot of these important points as you go through your scriptures. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You are accepted in Christ because of Christ. When God looks on you, He doesn't see the wretched sinner that you have been. He sees instead the perfect lamb sacrificed for you. He sees my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So that everything that is spiritually true of Christ, because of your union with Him by faith, you've been identified with His death and identified with His new life and resurrection. You have been joined with Him and everything that is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of you. When God sees you, He sees His beloved child in whom He is well pleased. Let the world do its worst. You want to come against me? Great, because I'm out of here. Soon as I'm done here in this earth suit, I get to go home and I get to be with my daddy where I belong. We are not made for this world. 
And if you're finding your security, your provision, your joy, and your acceptance in this world, you will be sorely disappointed. Not just now, but forever. These words are written and spoken as Jesus spoke them in Luke to believers. To those who have found union with Christ, who have received Him, as John 1.12 says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Why does all this matter? Jesus takes the time in the very first recording in Luke of His teachings to His disciples, He takes the time to connect us with truth and reality. Because our tendency is to only live by the flesh, by our senses, by our urges, by what we understand. We have a human-centered, an anthropo anthropocentric life. Human-centered. And we got to get rid of that self-life and embrace the God life if we're going to get what reality really is. Whether we are rich or poor, whether we are... Uh, are afflicted or comfortable, we must raise our gaze and see Christ for who He is. When we find truth, we find life. Without Christ, this life is all we get. What difference does this make in my daily walk? This is important. It's a really important question for us because far too often... I think in the evangelical world, we get this picture of the point of salvation, the, the point where I pray a prayer and I give myself to Christ as sort of the pinnacle. That, that's, that's it. Now I'm in, right? And, and everything is right now. Whatever else happens. And then we get focused back on flesh things again. Jesus is saying, this is how you live the blessed life. If you want to be able to be like me, you don't be trapped in the things of this world, whether you're in plenty or in want. It affects us because so often we as Christ followers, having secured our eternity, live as if we were atheists. We live as if there were no God, as if none of it mattered. We live as if what we have here is all we are ever going to have, and what we see is all that really matters. And so we get wrapped up in our plenty, and we get wrapped up in our need, and we get so down when things are down, and so excited about things that don't matter. And we are willing to sacrifice the best things to, perceive, to take hold of what we perceive as really good things. I'm going to take that new job and and, and get that promotion because I got to get some money. I got to stack some paper. I got, I got bills to pay. I got to have a, a car as good as the neighbors. I got to have a house that looks right. I got to wear the right clothes. I got to do all of these things. And it seems so petty when we talk about it here. But then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, when you go home and all of those feelings take over, our minds get lowered. And in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, look, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That, that, all that stuff that you see now, that's all temporary. All the things that you fear, 
it just doesn't matter. Because this world can take your stuff. Who cares? Your possessions are in heaven. And nobody can take from you anything that God has given to you without God allowing it. So if God allows this world to take your possessions or your happiness or your safety or your very life, He can. And it must mean that it's good for you. That He's stripping away the present to focus your eyes on what is to come. Paul says in Romans 8.18, man, this present stuff, this suffering I'm going through, it's not even worth comparing to what is to come. He gets that perspective. I want to close you with this last passage of Scripture. He gets that perspective for us in Philippians chapter 4. Turn with me there if you would. Galatians, Ephesians... Philippians, Colossians. If your pages are as skinny as mine, it might take you a while to passing back and forth. Our youth group worked together really hard to memorize a big chunk of this passage, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Here's what Paul says about stuff, about suffering, security, provision, joy, and acceptance. Starting with Philippians 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, he doesn't say rejoice in your stuff, rejoice in your circumstance. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Enough to repeat it. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, then you should be able to, to handle life without being a jerk. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be worried. Don't be stressed. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, we tend to want to pray and have God guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, but we don't do the rest of the stuff that he says. He says, here's step one. The guarding is step two. And we want step two without step one. We have to rejoice in the Lord. We have to turn these things over to Him. And He clarifies it in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's not the, you know, hey, don't think about anything that's hard. Just ignore hard things in life. That's not what He's saying. Dwell on, focus your mind on what is true. Get your mind rooted in the Word of God so that you're renewing your mind day by day that the Spirit might transform you from within. And when you do these things, the peace of God, which transcends any understanding you might have in your own self, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is where we find peace. Whatever you have learned from me, verse 9, or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, he's excited because they're sending him gifts in verse 10. But jump ahead, if you would, to verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need. He knows what Jesus is saying to the poor and afflicted and needy. And I know what it is to have plenty. He knows what it is that Jesus is saying to the comfortable and the rich and the affluent. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. I find that strength in Christ because real life is more than the circumstances of this life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, fix our minds, fix our hearts. We've been so caught up so often. Lord, if I'm pointing a finger at anyone, then i got three pointing back at me. We get so caught up in the now, in the good stuff and the bad stuff. We get trapped in this life. Lord, help us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We're seated in heaven with Christ. Lord, remind us that when when Christ appears, who is our life, we will be joined with him in glory. And none of this stuff matters. It's just not worth comparing. So teach us, as your son did, to set aside anything of this world, any light and temporary trial that seems like the end to us now. It seems like everything and forever. Teach us to set that aside for the joy that is before us. Pray this in Jesus' name.